Morning, gents. Hope you're having a meaningful Holy Week. And if uh, you didn't even know this is Holy Week, uh, let me tell you, this is Holy Week. If you'd like to join us, uh, if you don't have uh, services in your own church, uh, they've been going on noon every day this week here. You're welcome to join us. Rocky and I are preaching on alternate uh, days. And uh, somebody else is preaching today. Who's preaching? Somebody. Chuck. Chuck Colson, you say? All right. Uh, so come on and join us at noon today. We have lunch at 11 o'clock if you like. And then tonight we have a Monday Thursday communion. I believe Rocky's preaching tonight there. And then tomorrow, Good Friday. In fact, some of us are fasting tomorrow. I know some of you don't make a habit of fasting. Some of you probably wouldn't hurt you. Just eat a bit to do it. I know it wouldn't hurt me. So uh, join us tomorrow. Some of us are fasting on Good Friday. And we'll have a service here at noon. Sunrise service is 6.30. That'll be no trouble for Ameners. We're used to 6.30. In fact, it's getting so light out there, I feel like I'm running late when I come to Amen now. I guess we'll change that here in a couple of weeks. But feel free to come join us for sunrise service. Once again, if you don't have a place to be on sunrise on the Easter morning, that's a great way to usher in the day. Uh, we're going to be meeting uh, this year at Botanical Gardens at 6.30, and we'll have some, uh, a light breakfast there after that. So take it all in and, and enjoy it. It's important because we need to remember what we're all about. And uh, one of the problems of becoming a Christian is that we can get a little uh, weary of it. It's kind of like uh, marriage itself. There's a guy who uh, took his depressed wife to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist interviewed her and discovered that she was depressed. And so he said, I think I've got part of the answer. And he got up out of his seat, went over to the woman, took her in his arms, gave her a big smooch. And a little smile started to come back on her face. And he said, see, that's, he said to the husband, that's all she needs. And the husband says, well, that's fine. I'll bring her in on Tuesday and Thursday. <laughs> Some of you guys kind of forget. It's supposed to be in love. It's supposed to be a hot romance. And uh, the problem is that we, we we have distance growing in between us. You know, the Shibo case that everybody's uh, looking at in the newspapers these days, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, it wasn't until after the million-dollar lawsuit was settled that, that the Mr. Shibo begins to think that maybe it's better that she go on and die. <laughs> A little strange coincidence there back in 1993. Uh, and it's difficult. It's very difficult in his case with a wife who's basically out of it. How do, you, how do you be a husband? But you know what? When we promise in those vows, that's exactly what we promise to do. All kinds of things can come in between us and those vows. And if you become a Christian, all kinds of things will come in between you and the Lord, between the time you commit yourself to Christ and the time you get home safely. And one of those things that, that comes in is, is actually a, uh, another partner, a prostitute. And that's what we've been looking at in Revelation, uh, chapter 18, 19. The world is like a prostitute. It's alluring. It reminds me of the guy who was, he was on a cruise. He happened to have been single, but he, <clears throat> he, was on, he was next to the rail, and a woman walks by, and she kind of smiles at him, and he notices her, and she's pretty. So he arranges to sit with her at dinner, and uh, they start talking, and, she, and uh, he says, why are you smiling? She said, well, you made me think so much of my third husband. <clears throat> he said, well, how many times have you been married? And she said, twice. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, you've got one out there who's trying to allure you in the same way. And uh, it's the world. The world is after you, trying to connect with you, trying to hook up with you, trying to take you away from your first commitment to Christ. And especially when tough times come, you know, whether it's business tough times, relational tough times, marital tough times, uh, or if you're single, you know, you're lonely, uh, it's always during the tough times the devil will try to find his opportunity. And John is writing to a bunch of folks who are having tough times. They're being marginalized in their businesses because they won't go along with the paganism of their day. And if you don't deal, do business with a prostitute, you're not going to get into the trade associations and so on. So they were all, all being marginalized. And that was tough. And then they were being persecuted. And they were being looked down upon and held in contempt by the society. So it was a good time to be looking at other options besides Christianity. And there's always one there waiting for you. And so this whole apocalypse, this whole vision is to arrest people who are flirting or being allured by flirtatious uh, uh, solicitations by the world, to arrest them to say, look, let's remember what direction this world is going and what direction you're going. So if you remember, we were in Revelation chapter 17, and we saw that the woman is on the beast. The woman is, is worldliness, Babylon. She's riding the beast, uh, who is very much like that beast that we had seen earlier in Revelation, who's coming up out of the sea. All the world philosophies and false religions is fueling this worldliness, trying to take your mind away from Christ, trying to take your devotion away from Him, trying to take your worship away from Him, give you some other God to worship. Always trying to undermine your relationship with Jesus Christ because the devil came to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus Christ is the one who came to give us life that we may have it to the full. Now we want to pick up on the, on the story in, in uh, Revelation 18. And this, this section goes all the way through 1910. And it will take us uh, a couple or three weeks to get through this to see all the mechanisms here of Babylon and its destruction. Babylon being a symbol for the world. Let's pick up with 18, verse 1, and read through verse, verses uh, uh, 1 through 8 today. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Okay, 
We're taking a look at this concept of coming out. Come out of Babylon. Come out of the world. First thing we want to notice in verses 1 through 3 is the world's coming down. In case you hadn't noticed, it's, it's being judged. It is under judgment already. And as a matter of fact, there are several places in the Bible where we find this. We'll be looking in just a moment. Now, notice in verses 1 and the first part of 2 that her spell is broken. What do we mean by that? Well, first of all, in verse 1, her spell is broken by the messenger of God's truth. He is one who has great authority, and the earth is illuminated by his splendor. So, what John is seeing is that with all of the gaudy and tacky allurements of the woman with her pearls and fine jewels and her, her clothing and you know, her, her shiny appearance, that when the messenger of truth comes into the scene, that he has a louder voice, a clearer voice, and a more radiant presence. So it's true. If, if you've lived on both sides of the fence for any time at all in your life, in your adult life, your conscious life, you, you felt it as I did in coming out of the world and just setting foot inside a real believing church where the Bible is taught, where people love each other, where they're held accountable for Christian living. And you come in off the streets and you walk into that and you know you're in another world. It's very, very different. And I can just say as, an adult, as one who became a Christian as an adult and who noticed the difference, I experienced this. There was a louder, clearer voice. There was a radiant brilliance that was much better than than the bars and the saloons and other places, you know, I've been spending my life. And coming into the church was a radiant experience. And that's what John is saying, that you can see all the dazzle of the world until you compare it to the real truth. And looking at the book of Revelation is one of those things, because it's not only the messenger of God's truth, but it's the truth of God's messenger that brings the light. The Word of God is light. And it shows us our way. And it radiates our own being. It takes up residence in our heart. It's living and active. And uh, the Word of God, as Paul says in Colossians 3, is supposed to dwell in us richly because it is alive. And it provides light for our lives. No matter what your circumstances, the Word of God will provide light for you. Look, for example, in Isaiah 21. And we're going to be looking at the Old Testament a bit today because so many of these allusions come from the Old Testament. Um, from uh, Revelation. But if you'll look at Isaiah 21.9, here is a prophecy against physical Babylon. And this would be in the 8th century B.C. And of course, Babylon didn't finally fall until the middle of the 6th century B.C. But if you look at verse 9, he says, Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses, and he gives back the answer, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. So, from the very earliest days, 200 years before Babylon actually fell, uh, it was prophesied to fall. And you find that over and over again uh, in, in Isaiah. Look, for example, turn back to Isaiah 13. And 13 and 14 are also prophecies against Babylon. Because, you see, Babylon was being prophesied uh, by God to be used of God to judge the Israelites for their disobedience. But at the same time, God is saying, those who are being used by God to discipline the Israelites will also be punished. 
So Babylon, don't get on your high horse and think you're really great because you're the tool in God's hands to punish the Israelites. And look, for example, in 1317, see, I will stir up against them the Medes. Remember the Medes and the Persians who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. So, God is showing uh, by using the very word of Babylon to describe this woman and to describe the world order that it's very much like it was hundreds of years before when Babylon was prophesied to fall. So, the world is coming down because her spell is broken by the word of God. And her cover is blown. Now, look over in Isaiah 47 while you're there in Isaiah. And let's look at more of what's being said. Look in Isaiah 47, verse 5. You'll see that Babylon is not getting by with anything. Sit in silence, this is 47.5, sit in silence, go into darkness, daughter of the Babylonians. No more will you be called queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hand and you showed them no mercy. So you see God saying, I gave my people into your hands because I was disciplining my people, but you had no mercy on them. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. You said, I will continue forever. The eternal queen. See what Babylon's calling itself? The queen of the nations. Or the queen of the cities. So using that language, it'll come up again in, in the Revelation. But you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. Now then, listen, you wanton creature, lounging in your security, saying to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Both of these will overtake you in a moment, on a single day. Loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. So even with your false religion and all your greatly worked out ceremonies and your idolatry and your self-vaunted promotion of your, of your city, you're coming down. And you will mourn even though you claim that you will not. Now, look at... John 3.16, and let's notice something about that chapter. Very familiar chapter. One of the favorite verses in all of Christendom. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Do you see what he's saying? That Jesus Christ did not come to condemn, he came to save. Why did he come to save? Because there was already a condemnation. The world has already been condemned, fallen Fallen is the world. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We have no problem with that. You want eternal life? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We keep reading. 
But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. In other words, God's wrath was already on him, and his wrath just simply remains on him. So you see what the story is here. That Babylon has been condemned, which is a very symbol for the entire world order, which also is under the condemnation of God. This world is operating on borrowed time. This world is operating under condemnation. It's like if you have a building that's about to fall down uh, downtown, the judge is going to condemn it. The fire department's going to go complain to the judge, tell him that building's got to come down, somebody's going to get hurt, so he condemns it. That building may remain there, but it's condemned. It's on its way down. It's just a matter of time until the construction crew or the deconstruction crew shows up. The wrecking ball. So the world has been condemned, and we're waiting for the wrecking ball. That's the way Babylon is portrayed in the Old Testament, and that's the way Jesus comes to say that that condemnation has, has really applied to the entire world, everyone who's rejected God's Son, the Messiah. Everyone who does not know Him is under that condemnation. Now let's turn back to one more Old Testament section. Let's look at Jeremiah, because this is the most probably the most prominent place in the Scriptures where you get the language of Babylon from which... John is borrowing, or John's vision is borrowing, in Revelation. It's very clear. When you read Jeremiah 50 and 51, and then you read Revelation 17 through 19, we're talking about the same language. It's pervasively held in common. In chapter 50, you'll see that it begins with verse 2. Well, look at verse 1. This is the word the Lord spoke to Jeremiah, the prophet concerning Babylon and the land of the Babylonians. Announce and proclaim among the nations. Lift up a banner and proclaim it. Proclaim it. Keep nothing back but say, Babylon will be captured. Bel will be put to shame. Marduk, filled with terror. Those are the gods, by the way. Her images will be, will be put to shame and her idols filled with terror. So all that section introduces uh, the condemnation of Babylon. Look at chapter 51. And look at verse 7, for example. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. Does that sound familiar? The woman in chapter 17 is holding a gold cup. She made the whole earth drunk. Does that sound familiar? The kings of the earth are drunk with her adulteries, her abominations. The nations drank her wine, therefore they have now gone mad. Babylon will suddenly fall and be broken. Wail over her. Get balm for her pain. Perhaps she can be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she cannot be healed. Let us leave her and each go to his own land, for her judgment reaches to the skies. It rises as high as the clouds. So you see that pronouncement of irrevocable judgment upon the city of Babylon. Then read over, look at verse 42. The sea will rise over Babylon. Its roaring waves will cover her. Her towns will be desolate. A dry and desert land. A land where no one lives. Through which no man travels. I will punish Bel, that's the God, in Babylon. And make him spew out what he has swallowed. The nations will no longer stream to him. And the wall of Babylon will fall. And look at this verse. Come out of her, my people. Run for your lives. Run from the fierce anger of the Lord. Down to verse 48. Then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon. For out of the north, destroyers will attack her. 
declares the Lord. Babylon must fall because of Israel's slain, just as the slain in all the earth have fallen because of Babylon. You who have escaped the sword, leave and do not linger. Remember the Lord in a distant land and think on Jerusalem. Okay. Look at verse 50. Remember the Lord in a distant land and think on Jerusalem. All right. The people are now in Babylon in Jeremiah 51. They're living there. They've been taken into exile from Israel. He's saying Babylon is going to come down. Leave her immediately. Get your heart set on Jerusalem. Does this sound like Revelation to you? When we get through with Babylon, where are we going to go? You get to Revelation 21 and 22, who are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about Jerusalem. So, isn't it obvious that the vision is taking Old Testament truth and showing how it's to be applied in our day and in the future? Babylon was a picture of the whole world order. And Jerusalem, the city, the physical city in the Old Testament, was a picture of the city to which we're going. So, when the prophets tell them to get out of Babylon, ultimately, the deepest truth of all is to get out of the city of this world. So leave it and go to the city of God, which is, as we shall see in Revelation 21 and 22, coming down out of heaven. So this Jeremiah 51 really does set the backdrop for this last section of Revelation and really, I think, lays the framework for how we understand the meaning of Babylon and Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Are the promises just applied to physical cities? When he says to leave Babylon, does that mean that for, for now and forever we should never go back to the ruins of Babylon in Iraq? We should never have anything to do with that city? Does it mean in Jerusalem that we should try to reestablish some city over there on the other side of the Mediterranean? No. Look at Revelation. Revelation is showing us how to understand our Old Testaments. So that's what's happening. The cover is being blown. Babylon is being seen for what it is. When the gospel truth comes into your life, it sheds light on your flesh, that is your sin. It sheds light on the devil and what he's trying to do. And it sheds light on the world. And that's the reason we need to keep reading our Bibles. Because that's the only thing that will bring light to help us understand what's going on around us. Now, the, her cover is blown. What does he mean by this? Well, in verse 2b, first of all, her cover is blown because now we know she's empowered by demons. Empowered by demons. Look at 2b, back in Revelation. You remember where that is? That's the last book in the Bible. We're back there now. She has become a home for demons, a haunt of every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Sometimes, gentlemen, we become very secular in the way that we think about our workplace about the economy, about national powers, about all the things going on around us. What the Bible consistently teaches us is that there are actually evil, demonic beings that are at work in this world. When you read the, the gospel accounts, it makes you, you know, they're so dramatic there, it makes you think, well, I guess that was just first century, you know, when the demons were at work. No, the demons are simply accommodating themselves to whatever level of sophistication the culture enjoys. If it's a sophisticated culture, a very secularized culture, the most, the, the most stupid thing that the demons could do would be to come out in some raw, primitive manner, which would be held uh, in contempt or be seen as detestable 
by our secularized, sophisticated society. No, they they disguise themselves as angels of light. They uh, accommodate to the culture itself. And they're at work trying to allure you away from the life of blessing and a relationship with, with your bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you might have a relationship with a false god, some god that doesn't even exist. I'll leave your finger there in Revelation. I promise we'll come back to it again. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And here Paul is making an argument about the idol worship in Corinth. And some people were saying, well, okay, maybe we shouldn't do that. But it's no big deal. These idols are just stupid stones, carvings, sculptures. What difference does it make? You know, it's harmless. And I've heard some people say about other religions, oh, they're just harmless. You know, so... Some, maybe eventually someday other people will be more enlightened and they'll see it doesn't really hurt them so badly as long as they're being kind to their neighbor. Well, if you look in, in 1 Corinthians 10, you'll see a little bit different picture uh, in verse 20. Uh, we'll look at verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not uh, those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So all the false worship of this world is actually demonic. And the, the revelation that John saw is taking the cover off, the disguise off, the innocence off of this world. And showing you behind the curtain. That behind the curtain, there are demons that are manipulating the images of this world and seeking to draw you away from the Lord. Secondly, she is ensnaring the nations. As you see in verse 3, the kings of the earth committed adultery with her, just as we saw in Isaiah and Jeremiah. This is what Babylon did, made the nations drunk with her elixirs, and this is what the world order does. And those who are powerful, those who are wealthy, those who have influence, are drinking her adulteries and coming under her influence. Now, what's so interesting is that uh, if you look, if you were to think for a moment about the prophecy of Daniel, yeah, if you've read the book of Daniel lately, it's really interesting, isn't it? The first, the first half of it or so is about Daniel living in where? Babylon. And... Daniel is offered, you know, in the first chapter, he's offered the food from the king's table because he and his friends are to be developed as uh, these foreigners who will be leaders in Babylon, who know the Hebrew language and through whom the king of Babylon will be able to rule the Hebrews because he'll have four nicely trained people under him who know the Hebrew language and can represent Babylon. So he's training these guys as underlings and he wants them to eat from his table so that they'll be strong and and also learn the customs and so on. And you remember Daniel and his friends say, no way. We're not going to do that. They want to eat according to Hebrew dietary customs. And then the king allows them to do that, checks in with them later, and they're actually physically better off than the guys who are eating from the king's table. God's way actually works. And we see their courage in standing up for their faith in several instances with Nebuchadnezzar and with others, Darius. And we admire the, 
the godly character of this young man, Daniel, and of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then you get to the latter half of Daniel, and you get all this weird stuff. You know, these four creatures and all this apocalyptic language. It reminds us of Revelation. You go, what's the deal here? Why would someone give us those two things? Don't you see it's the same thing? You're the Daniel living in Babylon. You're called to be faithful to your God and to his word no matter what the king says, no matter what the cultural norms are. You're to find your norms from the scriptures. So why do you need all this weird stuff? If you notice at the end of your book, you've got weird stuff too. The book of Revelation. So in your New Testament, it's just like living the life of Daniel. And you're giving these visions. Why are you giving the visions? Because they uncover the stupidity and the inanity and the evil and the cruelty and the ugliness of the king's table. And all that he's ultimately asking you to do. He's asking you to switch sides. He's asking you to come over on his turf. So that you can go back to your churches, back to your families, back to those in your neighborhood, and you can rule on behalf of the king. It's just a political question. But the king of kings is saying that he rules over them all. And he's stripping them naked so that you can see what they're all up to right now. They're asking you to switch loyalties. And that's the reason that Daniel was loyal. Because he had a vision. Because he could see from a godly perspective. And because he was not about to trade in what he had with God for what he could get with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, gentlemen, we're in the same boat. And that's the reason that at the end of our book we have Revelation, which is our vision, which stirs up our hearts again, and which casts a light on the tomfoolery of this world and shows us that behind them are demonic powers and that they're simply trying to ensnare us and everybody else. And... This ensnaring of the nations, you'll see there at the end of verse 3, he talks about the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. So Rome is clearly the center of imperial power. Rome is the one who's the weapon right now of the devil seeking to bring under subjugation all of the earth, including Turkey, where, where John was and where the churches were to whom he was writing. That whole, what we call Asia was under Roman rule. And he's saying that the kings of the earth, all of those in the local areas, are becoming rich through the luxuries of Rome. There was much said about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that was offered around the world. And of course, Christians made great use of it because it didn't take a passport to go all throughout Europe and Asia. If you're a Roman citizen like the Apostle Paul, you'd go wherever you wanted to because of the Pax Romana. The road system was in. The language was was common. There was a common language. So if Paul knew Greek and Roman, uh, he, could, he could preach the gospel. Uh, Latin, rather, Roman. Uh, if he knew Latin and Greek, Hebrew, which he did, he could preach the gospel. So there was a common language, common road system, common commerce. And the Pax Romana was advertised as a great benefit for all the people of the world. But here's what John is saying. The ones for whom it was really a benefit with the local rulers who are ripping off the people, bringing them under subjugation and under Roman rule. And they were the ones in the middle milking the cow. Uh, one time I saw a picture of, of uh, excuse me, lawyers, but this is a picture of the English barrister. And uh, the, the picture was, you had a big cow on the picture, and you had the plaintiff 
uh, pulling on the head. And you had the defendant pulling on the tail. And you had the barrister, the lawyer, milking. (laughs) Sorry. What John is seeing is that the rulers, the local governors, the local council people, they were milking it. And so the whole system was being milked. And Rome was simply paying off enough people so that those at the very top of the system got the most luxury of all. And gentlemen, when I look at the numbers in this country between the wealthiest and the poorest, the past 20 years, they have dramatically increased. Our CEOs are being paid far more than they ever were before in constant dollars. The multiples of a common laborer in the salary of a CEO is far more than the multiples it used to be. There's a gap that is widening. Why? Because that's always the system of the world. To just throw a few crumbs to a few people who will keep things in order so those on the very top can make the money. And you can say, well, I didn't design it. I wouldn't want it that way. Yes, but if you're benefiting from it and you're not paying it back, you are going along with the Babylonian system. It's just like racism. You can say, I'm white. Hey, my parents moved here in 1940 from Europe. What I have to do with anything in the Civil War? You know, you can't blame me for anything. Yeah, but look at this. The pay in Memphis for an African American is 40% of the average pay for a white person. Okay? You come from Europe 60 years ago. You have white skin. You're benefiting from a corrupt order that has a long history. You say nothing about it. You go along with it. You don't do anything about it. You're just as guilty as the ones 150 years ago. You're just a silent, complicit partner in Babylon's wicked structure of oppression. That's the reason that it's absolutely vital for people who live in places like Germantown and Collierville and East Memphis and all around here, Cordova, who are obviously in neighborhoods of privilege, to reverse a wicked system. There's not one person who's manipulating behind the scene. Oh, yes, there is, too. His name is Satan. And most everybody else is just a complicit partner who wants to claim that by being passive, they haven't done anything evil. If you're being passive, you will do evil. Because we're seeing here with light shed on the world order, it is evil. It's always been evil. And it takes just men who will stand up constantly, not in one just one great heroic moment, but constantly standing up, checking things to see if they be right, see if they be fair and equitable and merciful and gracious. And reversing the order and always challenging it. And of course, always making people angry with you. Because most people, if they can go along passively with a system that brings them the luxuries of the earth, they don't want you messing with it. But the people of God are not so. They are always the people who challenge the status quo when the status quo is built upon an evil system. And there's a lot of evil that you're working with today and I'm working with. And the light of the gospel is meant to come and shed light on it and to blow the cover. Blow the cover. The gospel blows the cover of all these underlying and sometimes very sophisticated evils. So she will ensnare the nations, mostly by passive 
agreement. That's how she slays most of the nations. They just don't rise up. They don't ever object because enough of them are being paid off through the system. Secondly, then, don't go down with her. She's going down. Don't you go down. How do you go down? Sharing in her sins. Don't do it. We've seen in Jeremiah 51:45, same language. If you want to turn with me over to 2 Corinthians 6:17, you'll see the same language being picked up by Paul when he quotes Isaiah 49. In uh, look at uh, chapter six, verse fourteen. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That is, that's covenant language right there. You'll see that come back in Revelation chapter 21. I, I am their God. They are my people. I will walk with them. They are mine. That's covenant language. So therefore, verse 17, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So what he's talking about here is holiness coming out from the system, shedding light on the system, not being swallowed up by the system. Because why? We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. What do we have in common with pagan temples? We have Christ living in our hearts. What do we have in common with someone who's serving the devil? And, of course, this, this passage is often used for marriage. And those of you who are single and uh, you're eligible and you're having occasional dates or courtships, gentlemen, shall I ask you, what do you have in common, if you're a Christian, with someone who doesn't know him? That, there's the most intimate partnership in the world. And, of course, Malachi speaks to this in the Old Covenant that we're to marry in the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're to marry in the Lord. So we're looking for someone with whom we have common commitment, a common love, someone in whom God lives. Sometimes people will ask about business partnerships. And I don't think this means that you cannot have a business partnership with someone who's not a Christian. If that be the case, then all of our corporations would just immediately dissolve and everybody would have to come out of corporate life, wouldn't they? But it's yoking your heart, the things of the soul, where Christ lives in that temple. And realizing those things you have in common only with other believers. Now, it also means we don't yoke up ourselves in business with someone who's taking the business in an ugly direction. Why would I want to be in a business with someone who doesn't have any uh, understanding of the need for diversity? Why would I want to be in a business with someone who says, you know, we just don't want to. Hire any people that are not in our, our group. You know what I mean? Forget that. That's yoking up with someone that's explicitly evil. So there are principles here. That you're yoking up with someone who's generally going the same direction you're going. Someone who says, you know, our bottom line is the dollar with no qualifications. Why would you yoke up with somebody like that? That's not Christian. That's not ethical. That's not going to take you in the same direction that, that you want to go. So you see what he's saying. Come out. 
of the world. Not by coming out of society, but coming out of its thought forms. Coming out of its commitments, its loyalties. And you take the loyalty of Christ into the marketplace. Jesus made it very clear that we are not to come out of society. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We don't share its DNA. We are not looking for its wicked conclusions. We're not trying to ensnare the nations, take advantage of people, give ourselves to demons. But we go and serve in the world society with a different viewpoint. Now, this comes to us really clearly. If you'll turn, I know I've got you rummaging through your Bibles today, but I think it's important to see the connections. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 29. While you're turning, let me tell you what's happening there. Here is a letter being sent from Jeremiah, who's in Jerusalem, to the captives that are in Babylon. Now, this is very interesting. Because we are in Babylon, and the Scriptures are a letter to us from heaven, from the Jerusalem, from the prophet, if you will. You see the analogy? So, Jeremiah 29 gives us a wonderful analogy of how we live in Babylon in our day with a godly mindset. And look what this letter says, Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those, all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So, we're in exile because God put us here. He says, I'm the one who carried you there. So, uh, don't feel like you've been abandoned by God because you're swamped with all this stuff around you that's alien to your Christian commitments. God has put you out there in dispersion. In, in that case and in our case. Look at verse 5. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. That's Babylon. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city uh, to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, there is the secret. You come out of Babylon in its thought forms, its spiritual commitments, its ultimate loyalties. You go back into Babylon physically and you pray for Babylon. You seek its peace. You seek its prosperity. It's a Christian thing to do to want Memphis to succeed economically. Why would you not? Why would you be a doomsday person uh, against the city? We're for the city. We're against its world order and its thinking and its demonic influences. But we love the city of Memphis. We want her to succeed. I know that in this room there have been a wide diversity of opinion about whether the NBA should come or not. And, of course, I'm not interested in anything that takes people away from church, you know, when they play games on Sunday. But I have to say, from the very beginning, I was simply excited for Memphis. Because something good is going to happen in Memphis. And Memphis, Memphians are my neighbors. And I love them. I like this place. And I don't plan to spend eternity here. <laughs> I'm moving on. I'm, I'm a pilgrim. I'm a stranger in a foreign land. I'm not a, I'm not a Memphian. I'm, I belong to heaven. I'm a citizen of Jerusalem. I'm a Jerusalemite. But now I'm in Babylon. And you know what? I like these people. 
And I want to like these people. And I cultivate liking these people. And I want them to have jobs. I want employment to be down. I want our schools to be excellent. I want there to be peace here. I want Asian and Hispanic and white and black and everybody else to get along together and to do commerce together and to do politics together and, and to live life together and be educated together. I want us to have the best educational institutions we can have. Now, that's exactly what Jeremiah is saying to the people of God in Babylon. You make that place prosper. Make that city great because you're there. Make it be known that wherever God's people go, there will be blessing that will fall upon the city. And that's the way it ought to be. This city ought to be blessed because of us. We ought to be adding to its prosperity and to its economy and to its educational system. And I tell you what, when I see 64 failing schools, I just feel like we're failing. Gentlemen, we're failing. And we have to be the ones to get in there and make a difference and find out how we can help. So this is what it means to come out of Babylon is to go back into Babylon with a different mindset. And yes, you won't always be given the levers of power because people don't always trust Christians. Because you're likely to insist that we don't kill children anymore or something like that. I don't know. You may have some strange rules that people aren't familiar with. Maybe Christians aren't supposed to marry non-Christians. That could be kind of goofy, I guess, in this world. Maybe they don't sleep around like everybody else. You look a little weird and people feel uncomfortable around you. But they can't help but notice that when you get here, you have a passion to make things better here. You start cleaning up the city and making these institutions great and trying to bring honesty and prosperity to every aspect of its life. Because you come out of it in the sense that you don't want anything from it. All you want is to give to it. You're not asking for anything from Babylon anymore. You don't want her luxuries anymore for yourself. You are seeking to serve her so that others, and especially the poor, may have her luxuries. And so the whole city is elevated. That's what you want. As my friend Larry Lloyd says, our goal here in Memphis is that Jesus Christ will be more famous than Elvis. (laughs) And everywhere I go around the world... Oh, yes, that's where Elvis is from. Europe, Asia, Africa, everybody says that to me, wherever I am. Oh, yes, that's the city where Elvis was from. How about that's the city where Jesus reigns? We heard of that one. Yeah, Memphis, Tennessee, I heard of that place. Boy, Jesus is taking charge over there. That's what my heart longs for. And that's what it means to come out of her luxuries trying to soak her for all you can get out of that prostitute. And you seek to now heal the prostitute, heal the city, and heal the people. That's what John is saying, that the game is over. She has been stripped naked. She has now, her cover is blown. And now we see that we're not going down with her. We're going to seek seek to rescue as many out of her as we can by bringing the peace and prosperity and moral courage and and fiber to this place. So, don't share in her sins. What good is that going to do anybody? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that you're to be salt and light. So now, salt preserves the meat, doesn't it? So we're preservative. We're the ones who make a difference in a world that is falling apart. And that salt will not save the world. It will slow its putrefaction down a little bit. And you'll be able to save people out of it one by one because you're preserving her and serving the city. Most guys in this community 
are simply trying to find out where they can get their half acre with their $500,000 house with their wall and their gate locked so that nobody can get in and steal their stuff. That's what they're thinking about with Memphis. They're not thinking about how do I get down there with people who don't even have half of a half of a half of an acre and don't have anything to put in their house and give something to them. I'm telling you, that is wicked. It's more wicked than the strip joints in our city. People who are simply trying to suck the city for all they can get out of it and then get as far away from it as they can and all this corruption. That's not what it means to come out of Babylon. What it means to come out of Babylon is you come out of its mindset and trying to get something out of that prostitute for yourself and you get back in there. And you figure out how you're going to put the stream of blessing back into where the people live so that they too may be saved. That's the Christian mindset. And that's what salt and light do. So if the revelation sheds light for us so that the cover is blown off Babylon and we now see it, what do we become? We now become sources of light who also blow the cover off of Babylon. We're the sources of enlightenment and illumination for a city that desperately needs hope. You want to know what keeps people in poverty? One word, hopelessness. It's the despair of thinking that you can't ever, nothing good can ever happen to you. You've been taught that since you were a little infant. And by the time you're 18, it's embedded. So how are you going to get rid of it? One person, Jesus Christ and His Gospel. The light illuminates and gives hope. That's what it means to come out of Babylon and go back into her. Don't share in her sins and therefore don't share in her plagues. Verses 4b through 8. We see that she's going to receive what she deserves. One little word here now that we're back in Revelation. One little word here. Verse um, 5 says that her sins are piled up to heaven. You can see it. Uh, God has remembered her crimes. Boy, what a, what a powerful phrase in verse 5. God has remembered her crimes. You know what we're told about ourselves? He remembers our sins no more. Hallelujah. He just basically has erased from his memory all of our sins in Jesus Christ by his blood. Hallelujah. Now, how would it be if the infinite, omnipotent mind of God The omniscience of God was focused on drawing up every one of your sins. And if the omniscient, omnipotent God were keeping a record of every bad thought you had, every bad word you said, every bad deed you did, and was determined that when all is said and done, every one of those would receive their just reward. That's the way it is for humanity in general. That's what it means to be under his condemnation. That's what it means to be under the power of Babylon. That's what Jesus meant in John chapter 3 when he said, the world is condemned already. That's the reason Jesus Christ is absolutely essential for our lives, for our families, for our friends and working mates, for this nation and for the world. That's an awesome phrase in verse 5 that he's remembering all of her crimes and all of her sins. Then look at verse 6. Give back to her as she has given. And then it says, pay her back double. I just want to make a little comment here. Most of your translations, no matter whether you have the NIV or some other, will say that it's double. The phrase there, uh, some scholars have actually found, as they compared it to Old Testament language, same language, it means just give her the equivalent. 
the word double is used because it's coming at, she's giving it this way and it's coming back. So it's a, it's a double, uh, uh, double play, so to speak, so to speak. But it basically just means give her the equivalent. She's giving it out. It's coming back to her uh, rather than paying her double, although certainly it wouldn't be unjust on God's part. But it's give her the equivalent of what she has done. And then secondly, verses 7b and 8, she receives not what she boasts. She boasts that she'll never mourn. She boasts that she is a queen, as we saw in Isaiah and Jeremiah. She boasts that she'll never be a widow. She'll never be bereaved. Nothing will ever go wrong with her. Life is a breeze, she says. And she boasts in her great strength. And if she can build enough forums and stadiums and museums and skyscrapers and golden streets, if she can build enough beautiful institutions and gain enough reputation for her economy, she just feels more and more secure in herself. That's exactly what Babylon always does. The Tower of Babel was built on that, which was the original Babylon. Babylon built itself on that. Rome built itself on that. And guess what? We're doing it again today. So don't let her vaunted, self-vaunted boasts and arrogance throw you off track. Don't share in her sins. Don't share in her plagues because she says she's queen, but God will judge her in a day. And gentlemen, this is exactly what happened. In 539 B.C., the story you'll find in Daniel where God's judgment comes upon Babylon and He foretells it. And the very next day after Daniel foretold it, the king of Persia, Cyrus, God's anointed, Isaiah says, comes into Babylon without shedding blood at all and takes over the entire city because he's won the battle outside the city. He comes into the city, overthrows it in one day. Just as the Bible had foretold 200 years before. And what John is seeing in this revelation is all the pride and the wealth and the prestige and all the influence of this world, it boasts that it's really where it is. And guys start climbing the ladder. They start in their 20s right out of college. They get to graduate school so they can get the best job they can get, so they can get the most money they can get, so they can live in the biggest house they can live in. They start climbing the ladder. And they get up to that ladder through their 30s and 40s and 50s, still playing the game. They get to retirement and figure out where the best golf course, where the coolest friends will be, coolest old friends will be on some golf course down in Florida and they keep climbing that ladder. This is the way you do it. And you get to the end of life and you find your ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. You've been climbing the wrong ladder in the wrong direction. Please, says John, to us all, don't be fooled by the demonic that is found in a city that we're supposed to love because of the people. But we're not supposed to love it for what we can get out of it in this world. For this world is condemned already. You get on Jacob's ladder. And it's a ladder down which the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And He saves us. And He'll take us back up that ladder to the city of Jerusalem, which is an enduring city. And as we shall see from Revelation 21-22, more beautiful than anything man had ever dreamt of. Let us pray. Father, we pray that You'll help us for we are so easily 
allured by the treasures and the luxuries and the pleasures of Babylon. And we do so easily look for comforts and convenience for ourselves out of a world order that has many defects and corruptions. We need a new mindset, O Lord. The mindset of salt and light. The mindset of service and of sacrifice. The mindset of love. Help us. By your Spirit, fill us. And give us such a taste of heaven that is coming that the taste of this world, by comparison, is at best flat and insipid. And it's at its worst, bitter. Help us to taste it as it is because we have been drinking from the fountain of life and eating the bread from heaven. And we have already begun to enjoy the things which will be ours in fullness one day. By this love of Jesus Christ, protect our hearts against the loves of this world. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.